you would turn there with me, please. Verse 15, Paul writes, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And, having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven heaven. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity again to gather here around the Word of God. I pray that as we've read it, that your Spirit may use its truth within each heart and life, providing us understanding and discernment, as only you can. Lord, we understand that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit. Lord, it's impossible for those who have not been regenerated to understand spiritual truth, but we also know that your Spirit is able and capable of working that truth within the hearts of those who are in such desperate need. But as well, as believers in Jesus Christ, we acknowledge, Father, that we are in great need of your Spirit and discernment of your Spirit to understand the truth of the revealed Christ, even as it is before us this day. May we understand and may we glean and grow by that which you have provided for us in your Word as we see our Lord Jesus for who he is, as you've declared him to be, and as you've revealed him to be within your Word. Father, we ask this, Lord, not for our own sake of growing in knowledge alone, but, Father, that through our lives you might be glorified and honored as we would catch a true glimpse of our Lord Jesus Christ. May it be to your glory and to your honor that this is accomplished and done. Lord, we acknowledge and recognize that we are people of need. And so we ask you, Lord, to minister your truth to our hearts and lives this day. Unto your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Over the past several weeks, we have been examining how that we, who were disqualified by Adam because of the inherent sinful nature which we possess, that's been passed down to us, and also unqualified by our own sin, meaning we have disqualified ourselves. We are disqualified by Adam, but then unqualified ourselves, having not what is necessary to meet the holy requirements and standard of God, his righteousness. But yet, despite all of that, We have been qualified, made to be partakers, the scripture says, meet to be partakers, which means that we are qualified by our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have considered several truths concerning this work of God in our lives over this past many weeks, beginning in verse 12, from which we have examined several or a few questions. First of all, we asked, for what has God qualified us? In verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. So God, again, the, the statement, meet to be partakers, hath made us meet, is literally stating that God has qualified us. He has made us qualified. Not that we are, but that he has made us that in Christ. Again, Ephesians chapter 1, we're told, if you recall, that we've been made accepted in the beloved. Not that we are acceptable, but God has made us to be accepted in Jesus Christ. Same statement being said here, different way, different form, different manner, but yet Paul is explaining that we have been made to be qualified who were not qualified. We who were not acceptable have been made to be accepted. We who were not qualified and disqualified have been made to be qualified. 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all because of him, not because of us. That's really the whole point, as Paul will go on to explain further in this passage. So then I ask the question, for what is it that God has qualified us? Well, God has made us qualified in Christ to share in the lot or the portion which God has determined to give his saints. Ephesians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Having answered the question for what God has qualified us over the past weeks, we then address the following question, how has God qualified us? In verses 13 and 14. And we had to be delivered, as we're told, from the kingdom of darkness, the power or authority of darkness, and transferred into the kingdom of Christ. Verse 13 says, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. The word power there means authority. It's the same as that of saying the kingdom of darkness, if you will. It's that power and that rule and that reign of darkness to which we were bound, to which we were under, and hath translated us, which here, of course, this means transferred us from that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. Paul stated that we have been rescued from this authority of darkness. It was through the light of God's glory in Jesus Christ, the light of the gospel, that God delivered us from the power, from the kingdom, from the authority, from the rule of darkness. But then second, Paul goes on to explain that we had to be forgiven of sin by redemption through the sacrifice of Christ. Verse 14, he said, in whom we have redemption being restored, brought back to God, through his blood, through the blood of the Lord Jesus, even the forgiveness of sins. It is through the sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus Christ, through his shed blood, of course, that we are forgiven. As Paul explained in greater detail in his epistle to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians 1, 7, he said, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. His grace is that of his favor, his kindness, his goodness. So this morning, let me pause here. Let me go back for a moment, because let's look back at what he says here in, in verse 14 in, in, of Colossians 1. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, or even the forgiveness of sins. But how is that accomplished? Well, again, Ephesians 1.7, it's all according to the riches of his grace. I've said to you many times before that the one thing that uh, as abundant that, uh, as our sin may be or is, the one thing that is greater than our sin, the one thing that is more abundant than our sin as believers in Jesus Christ is the grace of God. If you recall in the Romans, Paul said, for where sin did abound, abundant sin, grace did much more abound. So the grace of God exceeds our sin, even to the forgiveness of sins according to the riches, the depths and the goodness of God's favor and kindness towards us. So this morning, we will continue our study of verses 15 through 20, which we have read, with this truth of answering the question as we concluded on our study last week, briefly addressing this question, which is, what was required in one to qualify us? Now, we just briefly read this last week in conclusion, if you recall, and I told you we would not have time to delve into it on last week, and we didn't. But this morning, we're going to spend our time beginning to look into this. We're not even going to make it through all of this this morning, but just beginning to look at the truth of what was required in one to make us qualified. In other words, not anyone could just qualify us. We were disqualified, we were unqualified, and not anyone could just qualify us. There are requirements that are necessary for us to be made, to be, to be meet, to be a partaker, to be made accepted in 
the beloved. There are qualifications. Remember, the Scripture tells us in the book of Romans, Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, and he speaks about how uh, uh, we, Christ is the propitiation for our sins, of course. And also, we're told by Paul in the epistle of Romans that, that God, that the just of fire may remain or be just. And so all this had to be because God is just, but if we are to be justified, it requires one who is just to justify us. But the only way that God would be just in justifying us is that his wrath be exhausted upon one who is righteous and holy, who does not deserve his wrath, so that we who are unholy and unrighteous might then be partakers and be made meet, qualified to receive of this grace and this goodness and favor of God. So in other words, let me say it to you like this. God does not sweep our sins under the rug. He doesn't just dismiss sin. He never has, never will. Again, I remind you in Genesis, at at the time of original sin, when Eve and Adam sinned in the garden, God calls Adam out, remember? Adam, where art thou? And again, he's not asking, I've said this many times, some logistical question. Like, I don't, it's not Marco Polo, hide and seek, I don't know where you are. No, he's saying, Adam, come out. You're going to face me as you are in your sin. You're going to hide, but I'm not going to allow you to hide. So God calls Adam out, confronts him in his sin, and then makes provision for him after confronting him in such sin. So God has always confronted sin. He always will confront sin, and he never dismisses it or just excuses it or sweeps it under the rug. And by the way, if he were to do so, he would not be just. And that's what Paul is saying in Romans to help us understand this truth. So what was required? Well, verses 15 through 20, let's read them again with this thought in mind who, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, which is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. The truth that we're going to begin to look into this morning, and I said begin because we are not going to make it through all of this passage by any stretch of the imagination. But the truth that we are going to begin to examine or to delve into this morning is not something new. I am not going to be telling you anything that you should not already know or do not already know. However, the significance of this very truth, which we will begin to look into this morning, is in the reality that it is not something new, but that it is something that is eternal. In other words, many times people think something is great or exciting because something is brand new. They've never heard this. They've never seen this. And a lot of times it seems as though within, from pulpits even, that men attempt to do that. They attempt to, to give something that's going to awe and shock. Or, and No, this is not something that's going to shock you. This is not something that is new. It's not going to be new to you or it shouldn't be. But the significance is not in that it's something you don't know. The significance or something that is new to you. The significance is that this is eternal. That this has always been and will always be. And that's what makes this significant. So what is this eternal truth? It's simply this. Jesus Christ is unique. There is none as he is. There has never been, nor will there ever be. 
The adjective unique is defined as existing as the only one or as the sole example, single, solitary, and type or characteristics. Having no like or equal, unparalleled, incomparable. Jesus Christ is unique. How is he unique? He's unique in every way. There's only one who is able to qualify us before God the Father. And the only one capable of such is our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's because of his uniqueness, because of who he is. The character and person of Christ is incomparable with any other. And in this passage, we will discover how that Jesus is the only one qualified to make us meet or to qualify us before the Heavenly Father. So how is it again that Jesus is unique? What does Paul teach us concerning the uniqueness of our Lord Jesus Christ as the only one capable of making us meet or qualifying us before the Heavenly Father? Well, we want to begin this morning with this thought from Paul's passage, what Paul is teaching us, this truth that Paul explains to us, that Jesus Christ is unique in his being or in his person. And it's interesting that Paul begins here as he rightly should. He doesn't begin with it's just unique what he did. Because let me remind you of something. If his person and being were not unique, it wouldn't matter what he did. It would make no difference. So it all begins with his person being unique, that he is unique himself in his very being. And look at verse 15. Who, Jesus, now listen to this statement. I think we read through these things and we really don't consider the gravity of what the Lord is telling us. Who is the image of the invisible God? Do you understand what Paul just said? We're going to look into this more. But do you understand what he just stated? In other words... The only way that we can ever see God is in the image of His Son. God has manifested Himself through and in the person of His Son, our Lord Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Now, this brief statement concerning Jesus, I believe, is the most important statements of all that Paul declares about Jesus that qualifies Him to be the only one capable of qualifying us before the Heavenly Father. It is all because of who Jesus is that that which Jesus did has any meaningful significance. The person of Christ is unlike any other. Again, what makes him unique? Well, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, this truth is vital for two primary reasons. First, apart from the manifestation of Jesus in the flesh, we could could never, we could not relate to God the Father. I want to walk you through some scriptures to help and remind you of this and show you this truth. John 1, 1 through 3 and verse 14 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14 goes on to say, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now listen to what what John then states. And we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth it is only through the person of jesus christ that we are able to behold the glory of the father remember with me if you will moses says lord show me your glory and god says okay moses here's what i'll do 
I will place you in the cleft of the rock, in this, in this cleft, in this place of hiding, and I will pass by, but I will place my hand over. Now, God doesn't have a hand. We understand that, right? Because God is a spirit. But he's saying, I will hide from you my presence fully because you will not see me and live. But as I pass by, then you will see my hinder parts. And again, that simply is saying that God is saying to, to Moses, as I pass by, you will see the remnant of my glory, but not my glory in full. That's what he is saying to, to Moses. So what does God do? Places Moses in the cleft of the rock, covers him. As God passes by, Moses catches the glimpse of the glory of God. But here we see in John 1.14 that he already stated in chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. He goes on to explain, as Paul does in Colossians here as well, that all things were made by him and there's nothing made that was not made by him. And then he says, and the word was made flesh. And he dwelt among us. And we beheld, we stood in amazement and awe and wonder at the glory of God as it was manifested in the only begotten of the Father. The scriptures further speak to Jesus being the image of God the Father. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. God, who at sundry times and diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Notice again, same truth concerning the testimony of this Jesus. He is the creator. He is the one who created all things. He goes on to say, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. The writer of Hebrews also testifies that here that Jesus is the express image. He's the representation of the Father in which the brightness of God's glory has been manifested to mankind, to us. John emphasizes as well that Jesus is the visible and tangible manifestation of the invisible God in 1 John 1, 1 through 3. In the same, in the epistles, we saw in the Gospel of John where he begins, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. He made all things. Nothing that exists is made or is existent without Christ having made it. And then again, verse 14, we beheld, or the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory of the Father and the only begotten Son of God. And then in First John, in his epistle, he begins in this form, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Notice John now moves from the Word was with God, was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But here in his epistle, he says, that which was from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. He's saying the same thing. He says, we have seen with our eyes, 
We have looked upon, and that, that statement looked upon, we'll look at what that means in just a moment. It's not just a repetitive statement. John is not simply saying we saw, we looked, in the sense of the same, saying, stating the same truth. And then he goes on to say, and our hands have handled of the word of life. But then notice what he says. The life was manifested, we have seen it, and bear witness and show unto that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. So this is the manifestation of the eternal Jesus. Remember, Jesus was not created. Jesus has always been. But he was manifested in fleshly form. He took on himself the form of sinful flesh. He was not sinful, but yet the sinful flesh in which we live, he took on that same form of flesh without sin. And he manifested himself unto mankind. And God the Father manifested himself through his Son. Remember when Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. And he's saying here not that he and the Father are the same in the sense of that he was the Father in the flesh. No, but he is the manifestation of the Father in the flesh as God the Son who's always been with the Father for all eternity. Again, theologically speaking, this is referred to as Trinitarian monotheism. There's one God, and yet he eternally is three distinct persons, not manifestations, three distinct persons that dwells as one eternal being. And again, I confess to you, I have no analogy, no examples, no illustrations to provide for you to help you to better understand that truth. That's really the whole point of the matter. We can't comprehend God. And so this is who he is. And so the Son has always been with the Father, and yet Jesus says, I and the Father are one. They are one together, three distinct persons, eternally dwelling as one eternal divine being. And honestly, if you are anything like me at all, or maybe if you're not anything like me, that just makes you go, because you can't wrap your head around this. You can't. I can't. You can't. None of us can. We can believe this. We can know it to be true and understand what Scripture is saying about this, but we cannot fully comprehend this truth of who God is. So John is saying here, he makes several statements, three specifically, in which he says, first, we saw. John is saying, I've been eyewitness to the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. I literally saw Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, manifested in the flesh through being the Son of God. He, he had seen, obviously, many things. He had seen the lame had been restored and given help. The blind had been given sight. The lepers were cleansed. The dead were raised. The thousands were fed. The storms were calmed. The transfigured Savior he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. The crucified Christ, the risen Lord, and the ascending Lord. John says, I saw all of this, and I'm declaring it unto you. Listen, Jesus is unique in that he is the image of the invisible God. John would have never seen any of that had God not manifested his Son in the flesh. That makes him unique. John goes on to say, we looked upon. Now this again is not only to see as he just mentioned when he said we saw, but this is to observe, to observe with continuity and attention. In other words, it's to behold, it's to gaze, if you will, to be, to be awestruck 
because of the uniqueness of this one which he had seen. We find, again, John uses this same word in his gospel, which I referenced a moment ago in John 1.14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld, same word, looked upon, beheld, his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word behold in this verse is the same as the phrase looked upon, as I mentioned, and it means to look closely at or to gaze with eyes wide open. In other words, he has our attention. And that's what John is saying here. Not only all we saw him, no, this is no casual matter. This is no casual thing. We have seen the invisible God, which we could have never seen, through the manifestation of his Son in the flesh, He is the image of the invisible God. He is the substance of that which we cannot see. He is the tangible of that which we could not feel, touch, reach out to. The more we see of Jesus, which is to say, the more we understand the truth of all He is. As the very image of the Father, the more we become enamored with His beauty. Is it not true? We see Jesus, but if you really see Jesus for who he is, the scripture reveals him to be, you become enamored. You're gazing eyes wide open. He has your attention. The beauty of the glory of the Father as manifested in Jesus Christ is inexhaustible. Then third, John said we handled. John had heard, seen, gazed upon, and handled the word of life. The word handled literally means to touch. John had literally felt the touch of God through the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew what it was, if you recall, to lay his head on the Lord Jesus. In John 13, 23, we're told, Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. This is John, John the Beloved. And he is, has his head upon the very bosom of Christ. He, he beheld the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, and John was enamored. He was awestruck at the truth of who Jesus is. Jesus Christ is unique in his being, and that is through the person of Jesus that God the Father has made himself visible to his creation. Do you understand that's what's being said? Who had seen God? No man. How can you see him? You can't. He's a spirit. John 4, 4, remember? The woman at the well. Jesus says, that God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Why? Because they cannot see God. But now man has seen God in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The invisible God has represented himself through the image of his son. Something, someone tangible, physical, visible, that men could see, that men could gaze upon, that men could hear, that men could touch. Then second, why is this important concerning his being as that of unique, being unique? Apart from the manifestation of Jesus Christ in the flesh, we could not have access to or relationship with God the Father. People often wonder why we do or should make so much of Jesus Christ. I've been question before people have often said to me and made statements like this i've heard it recently even where someone talks about how i think we we've somewhat neglected the the holy spirit we're never to make much of the holy spirit we're to make much of christ 
Remember what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit? He will not testify of himself, but he will testify of me. Now, we don't marginalize the Holy Spirit. I'm not claiming that at all. We do not ignore the Holy Spirit, and we are thankful for the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ that dwells within us. But hear me. We would not have the Spirit of God if it weren't for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to magnify Him and His office for who He is. It is the Father who said, Behold, this is my beloved Son, not my Spirit. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. And what does the Spirit do? The same thing. Doesn't testify of Himself. Doesn't make a name for Himself. We're given no name for the Spirit. Yes, He's the Comforter. I understand that. That's not a name. That's describing the work that he does. But might I say to you that as the comforter, how are we comforted? He makes us feel good? No. He reminds us of who Jesus is and points us to our Savior. So apart from the manifestation of Christ in the flesh, we could not have access, nor would we have a relationship to God, the Heavenly Father. There are those who want to make much of the Holy Spirit while overlooking Jesus. There are others who want to make much of the Heavenly Father while marginalizing the importance of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must remember that it is the Father, again, who has expressed the image of His being in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the Holy Spirit who testifies of the truth that Jesus is Lord and that He is the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. So while we glorify the Heavenly Father, which we are to do, And while we edify one another through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, of which we should be eternally grateful, we are to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if it were not for Him, we would have no personal relationship with God the Father and no indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. So all of this hinges on what? On Christ. Let me prove it to you. How many people do you know who are unregenerate today? Do they have a relationship with God the Father? No. Do they possess the Holy Spirit? No. Why? Because they don't know Christ. He is the one upon which all of this hinges. This makes him unique. The prophets could not give the indwelling of the Spirit. The prophets could not properly represent the person of God. But there is one who is unique in that he is the very image of God the Father. And that is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but... Wait a minute. So does this not make him unique? Of course it does. People talk about how that Christianity is so exclusive. Absolutely it's exclusive. It's exclusive to those who are in Christ and know Christ. Absolutely so. Ephesians 2.18 For through him, Jesus Christ, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Oh, wait a minute. You find the Godhead here. By him, for through him, Jesus Christ, the Son, we now have access by one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, unto the Father, the Heavenly Father. But all this is hinged upon what? The Son. 1 Timothy 2.5 
For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. We're the men. We're mankind. The man, the man, not the spirit. Are you following this? Not the Father, not the Spirit, the man, Christ Jesus. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Seeing then that we, are, we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It is because of this high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, we have one who is now related to us, and now we have a connection with God and access to God the Father because we have a high priest who understands what it is to dwell in the flesh, to live in the flesh, to live in a world that is cursed by sin, though he was without sin. By the way, again, this verse does not tell us This passage does not say that Jesus did not sin. It says, yet without sin. There was no sin in him. By the way, does that not make him unique? In the very image of God, there is no sin. It's not that he didn't sin, though he did not. It's that there was no sin within him. Hebrews 10, 19 through 20. Having therefore, brethren, boldness, confidence to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. By the way, Blood would have to do with the physical attributes and characteristics of this one who came in the flesh. By a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. His flesh was the true veil. I've told you this before. When you look at the tabernacle and you see the veil that was present in the tabernacle and or the temple, and that veil was rent from top, from top to bottom at the time that Jesus died and gave up his life, laid down his life, that was not just symbolic. It is literal that the, it was literally that, that that veil was a shadow, literally, of the true veil, which was the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ, which when it was torn, granted mankind access to God the Father and the grace of God as had never been granted before. There was no longer a need for that veil, no longer a need for the shadow because that of substance now had come. What is substance? The person of Jesus Christ. The very manifestation of God in the flesh, the Son of God in the flesh. There is none other like Jesus Christ. He is not only the image of the invisible God, but the scriptures tell us here in chapter 119 and chapter 29 that he is the fullness of God. Chapter 119 says, For it pleased the Father that in him, Jesus, should all fullness dwell. And then chapter 29, same book. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead How does it dwell? Bodily. Bodily in the flesh. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus Christ is unique as God the Father's glory and fullness, as we've clearly seen. But he's also unique as our Redeemer, our Advocate, our Mediator, our High Priest, and our Lord. Jesus Christ, the God-man, fully God, fully man, manifested in the flesh. God the Father related to mankind through sending his Son in the flesh, 
that we who are in the flesh might have a relationship with God the Father that could have never been apart from the manifestation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is unique, for there is no other as he is. No one else is the image of the invisible God. Oh, man was created in the image of God. But what are we? We are marred images of that creation because we are full of sin. But Jesus is the express image. He is the perfect representation of God the Father to mankind. He being God the Son. You and I, you say, well, wait a minute. In the Old Testament, men had a relationship with God. Israel had a relationship with God. And that was before Jesus. No, it is not before Jesus. It's before the manifestation of Jesus in the flesh. And none of that was perfected until Jesus came in the flesh, died in the flesh, rose again in a glorified flesh, and went to dwell eternally with the Father in a glorified state of being. It is Christ who perfected. Throughout the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, just as Genesis is the seed bed for all truth, so the Old Covenant is the seed bed for the truth which has come to fruition within the New Testament, which is the manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ God's eternal purpose in Christ has now been manifested to mankind and we have seen the glory of God in the person of Christ and we who have seen that truth of who Christ is are enamored, awestruck, stand in awe and wonder of the very image of God the Father in the person of Jesus Christ. God the Father is invisible. The invisible God. We can't see him. But God has manifested himself through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh as the perfect, righteous, holy image, representation of God the Father. This makes Jesus unique in his being. There is none other as he is. Oh, we're going to see much more about his uniqueness moving beyond when i say beyond this portion of the text of his being moving on to see other manners in which paul describes him to be unique but first and foremost you must understand before his work before anything else before we see his unique power before we see all of this truth of the uniqueness of jesus we must understand fundamentally foundationally jesus is unique in his very being in his person because if that were not true, none of the rest would have any significance at all. Let's pray together. Father.